Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Mike Lander is a successful entrepreneur and expert negotiator with a proven track record of buying, growing, and selling businesses for seven-figure sums. He's raised over 6.5 million pounds of acquisition growth capital in his career and grown companies to over 20 million in revenue and over 4 million in EBITDA. Mike has a uniquely valuable perspective on negotiating commercial deals, having worked both sides of the table as a procurement director and an entrepreneur. In his roles, Mike has worked as a procurement director for what is now the world's largest RPO, MSP organizations worth in excess of $1 billion, where he negotiated hundreds of deals with staffing agencies. He's launched Piscari in 2010 and leveraged his specialized knowledge and experience negotiating hundreds of deals worth over 400 million pounds in total to empower leaders and sales teams to negotiate more profitable deals, especially when procurements are involved. So folks, I am so excited to have Mike on the podcast. Obviously, you all know that I am, uh, you know, negotiation is one of my things. I study <laughs> it. I wrote a book on it. I love talking to other people who, uh, you know, who are who are great negotiators. And and uh, and Mike and I had a little time uh, before the we went on air to talk negotiating. Mike, welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Corey, thank you for inviting me. Really delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to this. So um, before we jump into all that negotiating uh, experience and deal experience and, you know, M&A and all the stuff that you, you're doing in procurement, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid going up, 8, 10, 12 years old. <laughs> what did you want to be? Because my guess is a negotiating expert. Maybe wasn't it, but maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> did you even know what procurement was back then? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So it's great. It's a great question, Corey. Um, so so I, I was adopted as a child. Um, so... And that was a very positive experience for me. I had uh, very fortunate to get very loving parents um, when I was adopted. But what was interesting was neither of my parents were entrepreneurs, didn't know what the word meant, had never heard of it. Um, they were company workers. They worked hard all their lives. So I get a very strong work ethic from them. Um, uh, but they were never entrepreneurs. We had one friend in the family who we'd call an entrepreneur. He was a scrap metal merchant. He ran a scrap metal yard. And it was his own business. Yeah. And, you know, he was a real proper kind of like, you know, nuts and bolts, build a business, entrepreneur, buy scrap metal, you know, convert it and sell it. So at the age of eight or 10, I had no idea at all that entrepreneurship existed. I had an idea that, and this links back to the kind of maybe the adoption thing. I wanted to be financially independent. The one thing I knew was I don't believe money makes you happy. That's naive. But what I do believe is, is that 
financial security is important for your mental well-being. Yes. And therefore, I kind of knew that I wanted to create some kind of, you know, financial security in some way, shape or form. And that's about as much as I knew. Love it. All right. One final question looking back. Uh, what was the first deal of any type you can remember doing? It could have been something small when you were a kid or maybe something early in your career. What <laughs> I remember lending some money, small amounts, two pound to a friend of mine because he wanted to buy something and he had no money. And I remember, I remember I charged him interest on the two pounds. Okay. 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 I think I charged him 10%. And his father came to see me and said, What are you doing charging my son interest on a loan? So yeah, I didn't become a loan shark, but it was an interesting experience about uh, yeah, about doing deals. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Oh man, I love these early stories. They're always they're, they're always fun. Um Okay, so listen, you talk, you and I um, talked a little bit about um, you know, our experience and you know, William Urey and getting the yes and some of the classic negotiating training. I know uh, yeah. you know, you're, you're, Harvard, you're a Harvard project on negotiating alum. So yeah. it, let's talk about your negotiating background a little bit. I know you've also sort of developed it like I have into your own approach and philosophy based upon some of the, you know, some of the wisdom that we both have been exactly. trained in. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about your evolution as a as a negotiator and, you know, sort of where, where it's led to now and what you and what mainly you do with it. I mean, I think if I look back, uh, it kind of started, I was at KPMG as well. So I was very fortunate I joined KPMG Consulting uh, back in 96 to 2000. And the consulting firms, what were then called the big five, um, they did a lot of things badly, in my view, a lot of things amazingly well. Yeah. Like I learned so much from some amazing partners and colleagues. And the kind of my real kind of like experience of deals and negotiating deals came through KPMG. Because as you'll know, Corey, really well in professional services, the way you get to partner is by selling. You've got to be great at what you do. You need deep, deep insights into your sector, into your clients' issues. But that won't get you to partner normally. Yeah. You had to be a salesperson as well as a great kind of delivery person and relationship builder. And so I had loads of training at KPMG. Uh, they put us on a, uh, on a sales training course back in, well, wow, probably 98, I suspect. And they taught Miller Hyman, so the large account management process stuff. And we were taught spin selling. I think it was spin back in the day and how to negotiate a deal. And it all started there. I became fascinated with deal structures. So we talked earlier on, really interesting about win-win deals, and we'll come back to it. I don't believe, and my evidence points to, everyone says they're a win-win negotiator. My challenge would be 98% of deals are not win-win. They're win-lose. Because mm. the size of the pie is the same. You're just carving it up differently. And back in my day at KPMG, you know what we were taught to do was, we're trying to create value for the client and value for ourselves as an organization. And we had margin limits. So I was really clear what the margin limits were. And the, the, the art was, how do you construct a commercial deal linked to kind of performance that benefits the client and benefits the organization? And that's much more of a win-win type structure than anything else's. So that's my kind of start of where I uh, developed my negotiation interest. It became a fascination, a real fascination about how do you do deals with people? Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting, like I, 
for me, it's so different in different contexts, right? So, you know, in a procurement context where somebody is negotiating with a vendor or whatever, and, you know, and yeah. you have budgets and you have pricing or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, there's, there's only, you know, in one context, it is when losing away, every dollar I get or give is yeah. less, you know, more for you. You know, I would, I mean, one of, one of the things that, that I always say to my guests on this podcast is feel free to challenge my beliefs and whatever. Exactly. We, we can Same mix here. it up a little bit, right? So um, my my counter to you, my argument would be that it depends on how you look at what you're measuring, right? If you're okay. measuring it in that way, 100% it's a win-lose, right? There's only a dollar, you know, but if you're measuring it in from a, if you're taking a step back and measuring it from a bigger context that says, hey, vendor A right? Wants to grow their business. They want to do business with big companies. They want to establish them yeah. as a client. They can leverage those relationships for, you know, for their own credibility. They can, it can help them scale. Yes. Maybe they're not making their top margin for their biggest clients because they, because of the volume they're, they're taking a little, little hit there, but like in a bigger context, um, I would argue that it could be win-win, right? Depends yeah. on how you define the game. Well, that's important, Corey. I think, you know, the, I've always believed in the long term. So some of, some of my client relationships, it's taken me, I think my longest sales cycle was 10 years, I wow. think. So, you know, you kind of sell a bit of work. Um, it was actually through a partner organization as it happened. And then you build relationships and then eventually you do another deal. So I think if you take a very long-term view, if you work with big brands, Fortune kind of 500 brands, then you're right. That gives you credibility, which allows you to grow. I think when you grow your entrepreneurial businesses, what happens is you start off at a tier of clients and that tier might be up to $50 million turnover. When you get to that point, you tend to get one client that's in the 250 million turnover. Right. And that one allows you to then to notch up to, now we're doing deals up to 250 million. And then you get one at the billion. And I think, you know, if you take a long-term view of the world, yeah, then that's absolutely right, is that that is how you create a win-win deal. But in the moment, in the kind of short-term 12 months, as a buyer, as a professional buyer, uh, my job was to get the best value for our organization. Yes. And interestingly, as a, as a procurement person, so again, let's kind of bust some myths. Um, everyone thinks when they meet procurement, it's only about price, I'm going to get beaten up. Yep. And these, they're these stony-faced people who have no emotion, and it's just going to beat me up on price. And that's just not true. Anyone can buy cheap, anyone. But you can't buy quality and high quality delivery and timely delivery yeah. all at a low price with yeah. deep expertise. It doesn't work. Yes. So as a buyer, what I had to do was create value for my organization. Right. Sure, part of that was getting the right price. But my way of getting the right price is to look at what, what problem we're we trying to solve as a business. You know, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? What are the right kind of suppliers I want to talk to? Commercial constructs we talked about. Is this going to be fixed price? Is it going to be, heaven forbid, time and materials? I hate time and materials. I think buying time is a bad idea, personally. Yeah. Interesting yeah. as an attorney, I'd like to get your view on that. Um, well, I, you know, I, will, I will hop in for a moment and say, yeah. we, do, we do everything we can to try to do, like anything we don't have to do on an hourly basis, yeah. we don't do. Right, Same drafting way. agreements, whatever we give a fixed fee because we know how to do it. Whatever. Unfortunately, there are still certain things, whether it's a negotiated M and A deal, because you don't know how long the negotiations are going to take. You don't know. You know, there are too many variables outside of your control. Well, we That's still right. have to go hourly on some stuff. But I agree with you. I don't love it. You know, I try yeah. to I try to figure it out. You know, the best I can. Uh, but I guess keep going on your on your. Yeah, point. yeah. And so I think yeah, some of the other things that people may not be aware of is, is that 
you know, sustainability of the supply chain is a key thing for a procurement person to negotiate around. Oh, yeah. Diversity and inclusion, you know, it's really important. So the agenda's changing. Yes, cost reduction. Yes, savings. Absolutely. But innovation, reliability, quality, you know, uh, environmental impact, yeah, diversity and inclusion, all of these are now very much on the agenda. And risk. Something that people forget, I think, a lot is when I'm negotiating, I'm looking at the risk profile. So someone um, on LinkedIn just sent a message out the other week saying that um, they were they were negotiating a deal and, and, and someone had said to them, the buyer on the other side had said, you're too small as an organization. Yeah. I said, that's interesting. They just unpick that for me, too small. And they just told me some context. I think it was a, a comment I made. And I said, what, what was really going on is it's not about the size of your organization. It's what sits behind the size. It's your working capital management. It's about how big that client's going to be as a percentage of your revenue. So it's about risk. It's about your reputation in the marketplace, about the marketing collateral you send out. It's about all sorts of things. It's not just about this, you know, are you a, a, a $2 million, $5 million, $10 million turnover company? Yes. And, and, and it's interesting, like, the way I would think about it is, is that that is, like, if you are a smaller company, you should be aware that that's going to be a concern. Right? Exactly. But the concern really is in size. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's the risk that they think the lack of size creates. So if you Correct. can then counter or address, or and hopefully as much proactively as you can, yeah. right, what, what those potential objections are, then, then the size objection will go away because it's not Correct. really about size, right? Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, your payment terms, so working capital stretch, one of the curses of the entrepreneur is growth. Because as we grow, we need to recruit people. Yes. Well, if we're working with, let's say you and me, Corey, are working on a, on a, a deal and we win a deal with um, uh, Apple. I don't know what Apple's terms are. I have no idea at all. But I'm guessing 90-day payment terms on month end could be 120 on month end. Well, if you win a, if, if you win a million-dollar project and you're a, you're a $2 million turnover company, you're going to have to like, you've got to finance 120 days or more, 150 days probably of working capital yep. and bring in new people. Well, how are you going to do that? You know, so that becomes an important part of the negotiation is negotiating commercial terms that don't stretch your working capital too far. That gives the buyer more comfort and you're not going to kill yourself in the process. Yeah, it's amazing how people like who are not in the entrepreneurial world or in the deal world or the financing world don't understand how how many companies actually end up in trouble because of growth as opposed yeah. to lack thereof. That's <laughs> <laughs> so exactly right. That, they I, don't I mean, manage not, capital. They don't manage you know cash flow. They don't manage right. You know they and then yeah. next and then they know, get surprised. They yeah. get caught out, and then they're like, "Well, what happened?" And it's like, "Well, <laughs> what happened was you hadn't done a cash flow forecast." I mean, let's talk about cash flow forecast for a second. Wow, how many entrepreneurs do I know that you say, have you got a cash flow forecast? They go, well, kind of. So yeah. I'll show it to me. And it's a monthly cash flow. And I go, so what happens in the month? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, on day 14 of the month, what happens? They're like, I have no idea at all. I said, that's when you'll go bust. Yeah. You'll go bust in, within the month, not at the end or beginning of the month. That's <laughs> right. the point. Right, right, right. So, so, so at the beginning of the month, you're thinking you're gonna be fine. You get to the end of the month, and you're gonna be like, "Oh, 
we were in trouble two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So those suppliers banging on your door saying, pay me, and those customers where you bang on their door and say, pay me, and they're not paying you, you know, that's all part of the forecasting process to me. Yeah. I mean, I use um, just that kind of just shooting the breeze. Uh, I use um, FlowTap. So I use Zero and FlowTap. And I connect the two together. So for those that don't know, FlowTap is just a, it's a cash flow tool. But it does, you know, you put in all your invoices with the due date and you put in all your costs with the due date and it gives you a cash flow. And it's, for me, spreadsheets, once you get past being really small, you can't survive on a spreadsheet because it's those inter, it's the interweek, intermonth payments is the, or intra uh, is the problem. Yeah. Uh, so you need some kind of like system that allows you to just manage that cash flow. Yep. A lot of, a lot of business folks, it's a surprising number of entrepreneurs, wherever, you know, don't love numbers, period, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. And, then, and then if they realize the value of numbers, all right, they'll get as far as maybe a financial statement in the balance sheet, but, uh, yeah. you know, but, 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 you know, they don't realize that, you know, that. Um, but the cash flow statement. Is, is, is arguably more important than any, than any of that, right? You it know, is. Yes. I mean, you need to know, you, you know, obviously you need to know the balance sheet and the, and the P&L in the long term, but on a day-to-day exactly. basis, you know, so. Uh, on no the problem. day-to-day basis, you need to know your cash flow. Totally. Absolutely. Totally. Um, and then even, you know, even if it's not in that situation where you're going to run out of it, just, you know, to plan even, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, in fact, I just, you know, I just um, email my CFO or actually I have a draft email about the email. Um, and, and I said, hey, you know, at the beginning of the year, I want to have a conversation, you know, about the vision and plans I have for this year. I have some hires I'm going to be doing or whatever. And I want to, yep. you know, I don't want to build out the cash flow plan, right? And exactly. So we know, you know, what we need. And also, frankly, you know, it, it ties into my personal because I have my personal financial advisor who's saying, hey, you know, do, do you, you know, is there other money you want to invest? And exactly. so I, I'm like, okay, do I, can I go invest this money or do I need to have That's it right. in reserves for, you know, for our, for our cash flow plan? So, um, you know, we're about to do that work. Um, you know, well, that's exactly right, Corey, is that, I mean, and again, for, for, for entrepreneurial companies out there that are listening to the, the, the episode, you know, you've got a choice as an entrepreneur, as you just said, do you take it out in drawings or do you leave it on the balance sheet? And I had some really simple rules. Ideally, you want six months of cash on your balance sheet. Yep. Ideally, three minimum, six ideally. And then you want on top of that, you want your investment capital. So if you're going to like invest in something, you add that on top. And right. you stick it into an account that's separate. It's not your trading account. It's a separate bank account yep. uh, that you run alongside. Same with your um, tax payments. You know, yep. uh, every month what I do is I look at what the uh, revenue is, look at what the profit is. I take a percentage of profits and I stick it into a separate tax account. We, 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 we do the same thing. And I'll give a shout out to Mike McAllowitz, who was a guest on this podcast a couple of times. Uh, right. And Profit First, uh, his Profit First book, which is a, is a Bible, you know, for me. And yeah, we, we have, we have owners pay, we have owners um, profit, right? So yep. pay and profit are different. Uh, we have tax yep. and then we have operating, right? Exactly. You know, those are the four main accounts you have. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and you, we literally have several bank accounts for all of them. We segregate we do. money twice a month, right? That's right. We segregate it out. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's amazing, you know, what kind of, discipline that creates because not only do you do you pay yourself first you know and uh, you, know, you have a certain amount you're paying yourself which is an issue that so much bros have where they they take exactly. that last uh but it also it, it creates financial discipline right it, it does with my team they know what portion is in the operating account that's all they have to work with right they don't they don't have to work with my money or the tax money or exactly know. and that yeah. that's a 
brilliant point about that's why you do it in that way with those four accounts, separate bank accounts. Because when you come to win another client, the kind of the entrepreneur's curse of growth is if they're all in one big pot, you'll just use all the money you've got to stretch the working capital. Right. And then you'll find that your taxes are due or yep. you can't pay yourself that quarter or that month. Yep. That's why we do it. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, what, what it does is it forces better business decisions, yeah. right? You know, because, because if you've got it, well, if you're willing just not to take a draw, you're willing to say, oh, I'll deal with the taxes when they come. Well, now you're not making disciplined business decisions because you're really working off of, you know, you're, that's right. You know, you're taking loans from other pots that, you know, without really analyzing the impact of yeah. that and where the money's going to come from and how you're going to pay those loans back. So you're borrowing from the government. It's not your money. <laughs> no, no. And they're not, and they're not very, you know, they're, they're, they're not great they're, lenders. They're pretty, yeah, they're, when you owe them money, they're not, they're not very forgiving. When they owe you money, it may take them a while, but you know. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, <coughs> So let's talk about um, some deals and about negotiation as well, Corey. We could do this all day long, to be honest. <laughs> no, 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 we can. But I want to jump in. You also have, uh, you know, a lot of experience on the M and A side and negotiating yeah. things like that. So let's talk about that. You know, um, what um, what do you find is um, you know the most interesting things that maybe evolution you know that you've seen, um, and what you know what are some of the things people do wrong, do right on the M and A negotiating side. So I think on uh, M&As, um, one of the things that I see a lot is most entrepreneurs will do probably one deal in their life. Yep. They might do two, but most do one. And that's when they sell their company. And so the kind of challenge that presents to most entrepreneurs, no matter what scale they are, is, well, how do you negotiate a deal? So when it comes to it and you found three or four buyers that may be interested, how do you negotiate the deal? And when do you negotiate the deal? And that discipline, I find, isn't there. And it's not surprising because sure. you've never had to learn it. Sure. And that's why, you know, and, and this isn't kind of like a sales pitch for you, uh, Corey, but that's why people like you uh, and me exist. Because yeah. you need people who are in the deal space that know how to run a process <clears throat> and know how to create some tension uh, and how to uh, negotiate smart commercial deals. And that's why I think, you know, entrepreneurs that look at it and say, well, it's money out of my pocket. Well, my view would be it's money out of your pocket. Yeah, but it might be if you don't engage the right professionals to help you with the deal structure, you might have no money in your pocket because right. the deal will fall through. Right. That's right. That's right. Or, or, or you'll leave money on the table because you, exactly. you could have done better and way or, beyond what the professionals charging you for that. Yeah. I mean, interesting, you made a very interesting point just before the, the kind of recording about um, kind of relationship building and deal structures and win-win. And you talked about, you know, interesting, as you said, you know, it depends on if you take a short-term view or a long-term view of win-win. But when you sell your business, uh, as we both know, um, what happens is, let's say it's going to sell for $10 million. Um, you're not going to get $10 million on the nail, on the day, walk away with the cash. It isn't going to happen. Nope. <laughs> it just isn't. So there's always deferred consideration or an earn out, whatever you call it, different structures. And that's normally at least often 25% of the deal. Could be 15, could be 30. It's in that range. And therefore, you're going to be with that acquirer for at least two years. I mean, you talk about trends. I am seeing earn out periods stretch from two to three years now. You know, yep. Acquirers are a bit more nervous. More activity in the market. Definitely. No um, more dry powder uh, out yeah. there. 
But and and, and, uh, and more money up front, the, you know. So you are getting more money up front these days. But still, even even in this market, there's always going to be some back end piece, some earn out piece, right? Exactly right. Almost always, yeah. So that's kind of one thing. The second thing is is another reason you need people around you who are deal makers and professionals is is what I call the last minute chipper. So. Let's say you kind of, you know, you've been talking to a company for a while and it's all gone really well and, and you kind of agree a deal with them. You think this is great. Um, and um, you think, you know, you're, you're in your mind, what you've got is you, you've bought the car, you've paid off the mortgage, um, you've got a holiday place. Uh, and as a family now, you're more secure. Yep. So you've crossed the Rubicon. Now, at that point, the buyer knows, I know if they've already banked the money, I can see it in their eyes. I can tell in their behaviors. I can see it in the things that they yield on when they negotiate. And, and this isn't unscrupulous as a buyer, but what's going to happen? There's no tension in the deal. It's, it, there's only one party. Um, the buyer's got Batners. So William Urey, back to the basics, basics of best yep. alternative to a negotiated agreement. The buyer's got several Batners. Because they can buy all sorts of companies. That's right. You're a seller. You're way down the path. You've signaled to them that basically you're done. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to chip you in some way. I always think of, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Columbo. Yeah. Columbo was one of my favorite, favorite series. And it's called the Columbo effect. Because Columbo, the detective at the end, he'd get up and walk out the door and shake the person's hand. And he'd stop at the door, turn around and go, there's just one more thing. That's right. Right. And that was always his real, like everything up until then was yeah. meaningless practically, right? Correct. And that was when he really, you know, yeah. And that was it. And the same happens with m a If there's yeah. no tension and you get down to the wire and you've signaled that effectively you're going to sell, don't be surprised when there's a chip. So you don't get 75% up front. You only get half up front. You don't get 10 million. You get eight. And you're left with, I'd rather take eight than nothing. I'll do eight. And that's the problem. Yeah. So, you know, listeners to this podcast, if people have read my book or anybody knows, you know, that Mike is speaking my language, right? Because, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the sections I have in my book is on inauthentic negotiating techniques, you know, yeah. uh, and, um, and we talk about, you know, we talk about this kind of thing. We also talk about how to, how to counteract it and also how to, and, exactly. and you're right. I mean, the biggest thing is, I mean, listen, no matter what you learn in negotiating techniques or tactics or even a lot of the internal work that I talk about, leverage always matters, right? Yeah. And, and part of the issue is the deal's not done till it's done, right? That's right. Don't don't start spending the money in your in your mind. Don't don't plan that around the world trip. Yep. Don't, you know, don't whatever, right? Because at that point they got you, right? They have. I mean, it's like you said, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in what they, you can see it on negotiations, you know, and they may have had, they may have their, had their own partner, right? They may have had four of the companies interested exactly. in that. But now they're months and months down the line and, you know, who knows where those companies are and they, they just don't want to restart the whole process because it's probably been a grueling process for them due diligence and all this stuff and whatever. Yep. And, you know, they ended up, they end up giving away things that they wouldn't have in the beginning. Um, and it's, it's a problem. So I love that you pointed that out. And one of the counteractions of that uh, is around uh, the exclusivity period is when you get down to three pre-qualified bidders that have got the right terms, not necessarily always the highest price, but the right terms and the right structure that will give you the earn out. Yeah, then it's like, fine, okay, 
So now we've got a period. Can you do this deal in six weeks? If you can't, you're the wrong buyer. Yep. And you uh, and you put into contractual agreements, which you'll know far better than me. At the end of the six week period, all bets are off. So unless we either agree to extend or complete, then both sides have the right to go off and talk to other people. You can reshop. You can reshop the deal. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, interesting. You know, just, just looking at that, Corey. Just some of the deals that you've had. What kind of things have you seen happen on M and A transactions where you go, "Wow, yep, yeah, we could see that coming," and it hit us like a steam train. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's no question about it. You know, and listen, sometimes, you know, you and I are in similar positions and I want people to understand a little more exactly the role you play for folks uh, in, in a few minutes. But, um, you know, the best we can do is advise our clients, right? And we can, right. See some stuff, we can see stuff coming that they can't see. And again, it's not because we're any smarter than they are. It's just in this particular area, we've done hundreds of deals and they're on their first or second deal, right? Exactly. Um, so it's like anything else. I mean, I, you know, I, I do a lot of you know, stuff, financial services and tech or whatever. And what I often say to my clients, like, for example, in financial services, they manage people's money. Like you can, you understand stuff about, about the yeah. way money works, the way investment works, whatever, at a level that I, that I don't understand. That's why I hire you. Right. That's right. Um, but, you know, I can see some stuff coming. And it's why, you know, I, I give them, you know, all these, all these caveats. And then, you know, on the flip side, I had one recently, we just cl- literally just closed it on, you know, end of the year, right. In fact, the 31st. And this was a client who um, first deal, and they were selling and they had gotten an, an offer and I just knew there was more room, right? I knew the yeah. industry, I knew the players, I knew whatever. But at first they were a little hesitant because they didn't want to lose the deal because the truth was they would have done the deal at the offer they got. Exactly. Right? But I knew there was a lot, you know, and, and, and we ended up getting a final deal at 40% higher wow. than the original offer. And How did you do that? Just, just fascinated. You know, not, no company's named, obviously, but how did you manage to get the, from the first anchor that the buyer put in place, yes. how did you get that up by 40%? Yeah, so it's interesting. And uh, I love the role reversal here. Um, you know, and, and I know- I, I, <laughs> It's interesting. I, just interesting. Just to give it, just, just to give some credibility back to Mike, I read some of his online stuff and this, this low global anchoring is an interesting concept that he's trying to illustrate yeah. here. You know, so let me, let me give some context for folks who may- like, I don't want to assume our audience understands some of the stuff exactly. we're this, this conversation. Mm, so let me take it back. So, so for many, many years, and many of you still may hear a subscriber or even have gone to a negotiating training that says this, they, they, they used to say, never make the first offer, right? Never make the first, that's what they used to say. Never make yep. the first offer, right? Because, you know, you want to, then this whole philosophy came in out of study and brain science and those stuff. That's whatever. right. Said, psychology, yeah. Said, no, mm. psychology, no. You actually should make the first offer because you anchor the, you know, the, the deal. So if you anchor it lower than the other side, maybe they had a much higher view, but now that because it's so much lower, they'll, they'll probably come in a little lower and start sort of right. anchors the negotiation at a different place. Right. I personally, and actually I'm going to bounce it back to you before I answer your question. Yeah, I yeah. personally believe that it depends upon the circumstances like that. Correct. Whole it conversation does. Of, will you make the first off or not? Like, I, I don't like these hard and fast rules. I think actually what makes somebody a great negotiator is the art of negotiating is to, feel is to know the situation yeah. and feel which would, because listen, you could also anchor high, right? The first, you know, there's yeah. a low anchor, there's a high anchor. So, you know, it, just let me get your thoughts on that before I actually answer your question on this. I think it's a great topic. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's a lot more in this as well. And, and maybe there's a, a, a collaboration piece that we write about it going forward, yeah. uh, because it is an interesting topic is uh, uh, Cialdini uh, wrote this book about influence. 
Uh, and it was kind of brought to me then about, about how, how the mind operates uh, around deals and stuff. And so around anchoring, um, you're absolutely right. It's contextual. Let's take an example. Let's say I'm a buyer. Yeah. I'm a buyer of services. Uh, and let's say normally I buy marketing services and I've been asked to buy IT services. Now, I don't know the IT services market very well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out to the market and I'm going to get the suppliers to make the offers. So I'll probably go to five with a very simple RFI rather than an RFP and get some idea of the market data. And that then gives me a kind of a range of, for these services, we'd expect to pay $100,000 a year up to 200, depending on the scope. Now flip it around. Now I'm buying marketing services. I'm a deep expert, a real deep expert. I bought marketing services for 20 years. I know that what we're buying now, I know the market range, the zone of possible agreement, this Zopa concept, so the zone of possible agreement is between $50,000 a year and about $90,000 a year. So what I will do, I'll bring in three suppliers, not five. I may run an RFP or I may just run a interview process where I set out the scope and we do a half day workshop with each and I'll anchor the deal and I'll anchor it at about probably 40, 45. Because now what I've done is I know the market really well. I know the market pricing exceptionally well. So I know that at 40 to 45,000, I'll probably get a deal around that. But I know I'm going to pay 55 maybe. And in my budget, I've put 75. Mm -hmm. Because I need headroom. And that's why anchoring becomes so important. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. To go back to your question, which is, um, you know, one way you could phrase it is how do how do we car- counteract that, that yeah. initial anchoring, right? By the, uh, That's by, right. By the buyer. Well, first of all, uh, we had other other potential buyers in play. And the truth was, here, here was the truth. My, my client had met with some of these other players and they were clear that the buyer we ended up doing a deal with was far and above better, best for them in terms of the culture, in terms of how the clients to be handled, in terms of, you know, just all these other factors other than price. Yeah. Uh, and they said to me, and again, they were new, right? So they said to me, hey, you know, should we uh, should we just focus on this one buyer? And I said, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, we want to keep the other folks in play. I said, for two reasons, and it's not disingenuous. I mean, obviously, you have a clear preference here. And, you know, we want to end up with this buyer, ideally, and they, they've already put a number on the table that, you know, you think you would accept if push comes to shove. But two things, a deal's not closed until the deal's closed. That's right. So, you know, if you, if you just for your own interest, you know, you're not saying that you would never do a deal with these other buyers. You just have a clear preference. What if this deal isn't, doesn't get done, right? What if due diligence happens? They don't like something. What if, we didn't think any of that would happen, but it's all possible. So that, and then also from a negotiating point of view, Right. We want, you know, I don't like bluffing. I don't like, you know. Same here. Right? So Never bluff. I, if I say Never, to people, we ever, have other potential bluff. buyers in play, I want to have other t- potential buyers in play, right? I don't, yep. you know, I mean, I, there's a whole other conversation we get into 
where, you know, and, and some of these negotiations wasn't run on video, but even tone of voice. There's a lot of ways that there's my, something called microfacial expressions, right? It's, what, it's why I hate these negotiating trainings where they try to teach you how to mask, like, you know, don't look yeah. up this way because it gives away this, right? <laughs> now, now, by don't the way, I'm right. to teach you how to read that stuff. That's actually useful, right? Uh, there was a guy who was like a poker pro who taught negotiating around yeah. how you read, read tells. That's interesting stuff to me. But the opposite of it, I hate where they try to teach you how to mask it because the problem is if you really understand microfacial expressions, you can say all this stuff, you can't, you can't mask it, right? You can yeah. try to, you know, and also you're not present in the negotiation if you constantly try to. That's right. right. What you should do is work, working on the underlying stuff. Like, you know, if you're afraid you're going to give away the fact that you're really desperate for this deal, the issue is not that you're going to give it away. The issue is that you're desperate for the deal. <laughs> you yeah. got to work on that, right? Um, so, right. Case, um, so we had other buyers, we had other buyers in play legitimately. We kept them in play. Um, number one. Number two, uh, and this is where, and this is just me, you know, where having a good advisor makes sense is that um, I knew the market, right? Yeah, I, I, exactly. I had other deals going on. We had plenty of, we had a lot of deals closing into the year. I knew the market really, really well. And so when I was speaking to the other side, they, I, I could say that and they knew it was credible. So they knew right. that I knew that there, there had to be room there because I knew what was, you know, what was, what was playing in the market. And listen, uh, you know, in this particular space, in the uh, investment advisor space, multiples that are at really all-time highs now. So, I mean, right. the offers that were put out there were actually very, you know, would have been great offers three years ago or two years ago, but in this market. Um, so that's another thing. So they knew I knew the market and they, you know. Yeah. And three, we also, and this is a key point, and then I want to talk, turn it back to Mike. One of the things you really want to always figure out is what is the true motivation of the counterparty? On the Absolutely. Other like, what do they really want? And in this, What are their interests? Right. What are their interests? In this particular case, and I won't, I won't say more because the deal's recent and I we have to be no, no, really no. careful Correct. that nothing's identifiable. Uh, so I don't even want to say the specific factors, but I will tell you that we became aware of certain factors uh, on why my particular client in this particular location and the type of business they had and whatever would be a really good fit and a really good deal for these guys that would have them get value that would um, give them value going down the line and later in a way where it made sense for them to pay more, right? That's right. And maybe they would otherwise pay because there were other benefits. So having that knowledge, uh, you know, there's a, there's a story I tell from years ago. I did the Comstock photography deal and we and we knew it was they were bought by Jupiter Media, it was a public company, and they had announced that they were going to hit certain target numbers. And we, you know, it was a public company, so we could listen to, we, we did the research, we looked at their whatever, we listened to their um, investor calls, all that kind of stuff. And we knew they weren't going to hit the numbers without buying my client. Right. It was the yeah. only way they were going to hit their numbers. So we ended up holding firm on price. They even found uh, they disagreed with an accounting treatment of stuff that would have cost my client a couple of million, two, three million bucks. And 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 they were probably right on it. You know, it wasn't anything fraud or anything. It was just that our accounts had characterized things one way and really they probably That's should. right. Um, but we held firm anyway, not because we were right, but because I because I had the knowledge that yeah. we were the only company with having to hit their target numbers and we knew that how important that was to them. So uh, you know, just an example of knowing the motivations of your counterparty, and you know, and and using that. So those are the few things I'll I'll mention. Uh, I mean, one thing I that on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, so one thing that I'd um, kind of add to that is around positions versus interests. And again, like this is not my work. This is like you know, William Urey was uh, well known for talking about this uh, in his books. Uh, but for those people that uh, are listening that haven't read them, you know, he talks about positions. Positions are demands you know, I'll only accept $10 million or 
the payment terms are you know, 40% up front and 60 on earn outs or whatever it might be. It's a demand. The job of the negotiator is to understand the motivations. So what lies behind that demand? Yep. And it's as simple as having the confidence, another big topic uh, in the negotiation to go, that $10 million, just, just, just kind of talk to me. Why is that number so important to you? What is it? And they'll go, well, that, that, that just, that's just what it is. Yeah, but, but, but could we just like dig into it a little bit more? And you start with working out some hypotheses yep. about, well, you know, we know in the marketplace that deal sizes are between $8 million and $15 million. Why have you picked 10? Because you've got great market knowledge. And then they're slightly on the back foot. Now they've got to defend their position and work out why 10 is the number. Yep. So that finding out the motivations, and it could be as simple as, you know what? In this year, that's the number. We're in October. We close our year out in December. Our M&A cycle is we've got to close the deal by the end of the year, and we've got that, that's the budget. That's it. And then he starts to go, that's really interesting. So how about we change the commercial structure of the deal to do 10 this side and maybe two next side in, in the next year? That's when you start to get into the, right, now it gets more creative. Yeah, and I love that point because one of the biggest things, you know, that, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is yeah, listening and asking questions, right? Yeah. You know, people think negotiating is about demanding, talking, whatever, and the ability to listen and ask questions, it's amazing what kind of, I mean, Mike just gave a great example, what kind of information you can gather that would allow you to exactly. think, okay, what are the alternatives? How can we get this deal done? What is the creativity? Yeah. Um, so it's a great point, Mike. I mean, I also say whenever you're doing a deal, whether it's an M&A deal or any other kind of deal, is take someone with you. doesn't matter. The, 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 the seniority in the organization is irrelevant. What's really important is their attention to detail, their ability to listen and capture what's going on, and then organize some breaks in your negotiation. So you yeah. get, you know, you, you, you've prepared, you've got the first negotiation, you're at the table, you're having a discussion, it's an hour. Um, and then they, um, the, the counterparty starts to close down on you. Okay, so we've, we've agreed like six things. Great. Okay, fine. So they're all done. And they'll wipe their hand to one side and say, well, they're all done. That's okay. Great. Now let's just think about this like one or two. At that point, just take a break and just say, it's really interesting, Curry, that I agree we want to get this deal done, but I just want to reflect a bit on, on, on what's been discussed. And I'll go, no, 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 we want to close. And you're <laughs> like, yeah, 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 I know. I know but just want to sit down and reflect. Just give us an hour. We'll come back and talk to you. And then the person that's writing notes can capture everything that was said, not verbatim, we're not talking a script, but the key points. And then you go back to the negotiation table and say, you know, point three, we didn't actually agree on that. So let's park that for a second. And point five, I think you misheard me. You know, we said defer consideration of... Um, 15%. I think you said it was 25. I think it was just a misunderstanding. And all of a sudden, you've got this, because as a, as a sole negotiator, that's really difficult to do. I can't do it. I can't capture all that in my head. It's not possible. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 definitely, it's definitely hard to do. Um, and if you, know, if you could be in that situation, you know, it's, 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 it's good to have somebody else. Um, but, you know, but, but, but listening, you know, 
listening is a huge skill. I mean, it's just, exactly. you know, and people talk about that generally, but in negotiation, it's so much. And, and you know, and, and I don't know about you, Mike, and I, I want to um, actually circle back and, and have people get really clear on exactly what you do in your experience or whatever, because we need to close soon. Sure. But, um, but I don't know about you, but I mean, there's, there's so much bad negotiating training out there. Um, there is. And it drives me crazy, you know, whether it's these ones that I mentioned where it's like, oh, you know, well, you're going you're gonna to mask this, don't look this way, you know, or it's the ones that are always talking about, um, for me, negotiating tactics are useful things to know. But if it's the yeah. only thing you know, there's always a counter tactic to every tactic and a counter tactic to every counter tactic. Correct. If that's the out level you're operating on, which is some of, some of where these trainings are, they're all tactical. There's no frameworks. There's no strategy. There's no internal work. There's no, you know, it drives me crazy. So in any case, a little mini rant, but uh, it sounds no, like- No, I agree 100%. Yeah. And that's a really important point about anyone can learn tactics. Anyone can pick up a book or- pick up a article on the, the internet or, or anywhere, or talk to a friend. What you need is a framework. Because without a framework, you can't negotiate. I mean, just you, you said like, kind of, what do I do? You know, one of the things I do now, I, I basically work with on the, predominantly on the kind of sell side. So people that, not sell side of M&A, but sell side of uh, if suppliers selling into big companies. Yeah. Um, the M&A works a bit different. But, but if I'm talking about suppliers, you know, selling into big companies. One of the things I talk about is you need a deal structure. You need, you need a framework for your deal negotiation. And just very simply, I, I built this framework based upon all the training I've had, all the discussions, all of the negotiations I've done. And there's a simple four-step process that I use, which is you start with the goals. What are the goals of each side? What are the interests of each side? And the BATNA. Yep. Then you move into timelines. So how long is this deal going to take? What are the phases? There are four phases. It's going to take 16 weeks. And then you write down some milestones. And then you get to, now what are the deal variables? Price is only one. There's normally about five others. There could be 10. You write the variables down. And for each one, what would I ideally like? And what will I accept as a minimum? 100%. And then a bit like a sound engineer would do, you dial up one and you dial down the other. So you're trying to balance that out. And then the last thing is issues come up during a deal. So you capture the issues, who's raised it, what's behind it, how are we going to resolve it? Is it resolved? And that simple four-step process allows anyone to negotiate anything far better than they ever would. Yeah, love it. I love it. I'm I'm a huge believer in frameworks. I have some of my own. You know, it's 100%. So, Mike, we've alluded to it, and people might have gathered by um, it, you know, in the intro, uh, me talking about, about pounds and your and your accent that yeah. <laughs> where you're located and whatever. But uh, t- tell people where you're located. Tell people who you work with, uh, and also how they can uh, can find out more about you. Sure. So uh, Mike Lander, uh, based in the UK. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just go onto LinkedIn, Mike Lander. Uh, you'll be able to find me. Uh, Piscari is the company. Um, I work on the whole with um, sellers, organizations, you know, probably up to like 300 million uh, of turnover, helping them negotiate better deals with their clients, especially when procurement get involved. Um, And a good place to get in contact or to find out more, either go to our website, just piscari.com, P-I-S-C-A-R-I.com, or like you, Corey, I've written a book, but this Mm -hmm. is a workbook, not a textbook. It's a workbook. And it's a step, that's that four-step, step-by-step process. And you can buy the workbook. It comes as a physical book. Uh, and you go to uh, Higgle, 
www.piscari.com. Great, great, folks. Listen, I've checked out some of my stuff. You know, I get to know each other, but we had we had some fun on on the pre-call, and and yeah. uh, like uh, we could speak for hours. We could, we could. if this were if this were a twenty-four <laughs> hour uh, marathon podcast, we would still have content going. There's no question. Not so. We're gonna bring it to a close. Mike, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And yep. to me, that that means um, everything from freedom from all people from oppression in the world to the reason why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Uh, yeah. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Um, so freedom means to me um, a couple of things. Uh, one, that the family is safe. You know, freedom that, that, that the family can make choices where we're not forced into a position. We've got choices that we can make that's good for all of us. So that's kind of, you know, one of my kind of biggest things. And the other thing is the freedom to just kind of think and innovate. Yeah. yeah, like you, I haven't worked for someone for a, a long time. Um, <laughs> and I might earn less than I would have done working for a big corporate, maybe. But I've got the freedom to think and innovate and work with interesting clients. That's what I love doing. Love it. Mike, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Curry. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.